Find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. In today's episode, we are going to talk about something that has become very important recently and uh, has been already relevant over the past few years. I'm talking about ethics of AI. And um, as always, we have invited an expert to talk to us about the topic. Uh, we'd like to welcome Nora Lindemann. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Uh, and as always, we are going to play a short game at the beginning of our episode. And the rules are always the same. We give you five beginnings of sentences and ask you to finish those sentences. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. As a kid, I always wanted to be... Ooh, difficult question. I was one of those children who could never give a good answer to that because I was like, there are so many things I could do and I want to do. When I was really small, I wanted to find things. So I was really good at like finding like nice stones or something. So I thought that's what I want to do when I'm old. Then there was a time when I wanted to be a teacher or a kindergarten teacher or I think at some point a professor actually. So yeah, many different things coming up. <laughs> that are really, I think especially the finding stones is really an interesting answer. Um, if I was an emoji, I would be... Mm. I like the sun emoji because it's kind of Smiling and happy out there. Yeah. The sun one. <laughs> My favorite thing to do on a day off is... Waking up late, drinking a good cup of tea, reading a bit, going on a walk, meeting up with friends, playing board games in the evening, maybe doing some sports in between. That sounds like a perfect Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> Right now, I'm most fascinated by. I'm very fascinated by how the field of AI is developing, I think, and also the field of the ethics of AI, which we'll talk about more in this episode, I guess. But just seeing all these developments and people working in this field in very diverse areas, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. And our last sentence. I know it's time to call it a day when... I read the sentence three times and still don't understand it. <laughs> We now come to your scientific background. Um, so you obviously ended up here in Osnabrück, as all our guests do, and studied cognitive science for a bit. But um, I have heard that you didn't start with that in your bachelor's. So can you maybe explain what you did in your bachelor's and why you then decided to maybe change the topic and your location to come here to Osnabrück and study cognitive science? Yes, I started studying, I did my bachelor's in Freiburg and studied liberal arts and sciences, which is a very interdisciplinary and broad study program, which in Germany in this specific way only exists in Freiburg. It's like cognitive science and English taught program with quite many international students joining. And the idea is more or less taken over from the US where you have more of the idea of having a broad general education in your bachelor's before focusing more on a specific area. So it was adapted in Freiburg to the German academic context. So you have a core area of subjects everyone takes. Um, and then also four different majors, which one of you, you pick and then you um, go into this area more. So depending on which of those majors you take, you also do a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Arts. Personally, I took um, the major in Culture and History. So I did a Bachelor of Arts focusing on philosophy, gender studies, cultural studies and history. So still very broad, very much, yeah, taking the subject that I thought were interesting to me. And I went abroad for a year to Canada during my bachelor's, studied there and got to know someone who did her bachelor's here in Osnabrück and told me about it. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting because I was always interested in doing interdisciplinary work, working in between 
yeah, the natural sciences and the humanities. That's also why I picked the bachelor. And then by the end of the bachelor's degree, I got interested in, well, gender studies, but also like the gender studies aspects of neuroscience, so neurofeminism, which is kind of about looking at how gender differences in the brain are portrayed in scientific articles, but also in scientific textbooks. This I thought was really interesting. And then I wrote my bachelor thesis in that area, coming more from a science and technology background and looking at how gender differences are portrayed in neuroscientific textbooks. When I finished, I was like, this is really interesting, but I don't have this profound knowledge of how to do neuroscience. And I'm interested in going more into the natural science direction again. And that's then how I ended up in Osnabrück, remembering back of my friend who told me two years before about this program. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've already hinted at the beginning that we're going to talk about ethics and AI. Um, if I was a kid of maybe 10 years of age, how, how would you explain what um, AI is? I'll try my best. I think 10 years is, is a challenge, but I'll try to break it down. So maybe to situate it a bit historically, there has been a development in AI. So what we talk about right now when we talk about AI is something different than was talked about 40, 50 years ago. So I'll focus on what we generally mean by AI today. What we mean by AI today is machine learning. Machine learning is a method whereby you train an algorithm, so a code, to learn patterns out of certain data. So you, for example, take pictures of dogs and of cats and you label them. Either there's like a label with a dog and there's a label with a cat. And then you take a lot of this data and kind of put it into the algorithm. It's also called feeding the algorithm. And then this computer code learns to see patterns within these different pictures. For example, it will see that in a way maybe... Cats have different tails than dogs generally do. They have different ears. The proportions of their faces are slightly different. And then you have a lot and lot of these pictures, which may be labeled. In this case, they are labeled. And then the computer learns, so to say, to recognize those patterns and is then able, if you finish this training, to say with a certain percentage, so with a certain probability that the picture you then feed into it is either a cat or a dog. Mm -hmm. So this is in a very broken down way how AI works. This is one way where you have labeled data. So you have these pictures which are even either assigned the label of cat or the label of dog. But there's also ways where you have unlabeled data, for example. That depends on the algorithm, but it always is necessary to have a lot of data that you put into an algorithm, it, so to say, learns certain patterns and is then able to reproduce these patterns or according to the patterns it learned, say um, that there's a certain probability that something is either a picture of a cat or a dog. And coming to the other part of today's topic, so ethics, how would you explain ethics in simple terms? I always find this a difficult question to answer because there are many parts to it. Very generally, ethics is about how to act. How should we act? Um, how should we be in this world in very broad terms? And there are many different strands within ethics in general and also within the ethics of AI. One approach is, which is maybe the more classical approach to say, we talk about certain principles. So, for example, AI should be trustworthy. It should not try to deceive the users or it should be benevolent. It should not intentionally harm people, for example. These are kind of 
more principles, which are still very broad. Um, but then there are also streams within philosophy, which are more about morals and kind of ethics as ethos, which is this way of how individuals mm, act according to certain ideals also. So this is also part of ethics. And for me personally, I also consider ethics as something that is connected to critique, to being aware of things are in the world and really trying to always reflect upon what is my impact of how I'm in the world? How do I shape my interactions with the world and my worlding, so to say? But also drawing attention to structural impacts, for example, of AI. You already um, hinted at some practical applications, but uh, I think like in the public discourse right now, the general idea is that maybe ethics becomes relevant further down the road for artificial intelligence. Um, so, for example, like if we have perfectly sufficient, self-sufficient self-driving cars, um, then they have to decide, do I kill one person or multiple persons? And that's a few years in the future because self-driving cars are not that far right now. But um, would you agree to that or would you say that ethics is already relevant now to artificial intelligence and the application of it? Yeah, I mean, you hinted at the trolley problem. It's yes. called the trolley problem. Um, this very famous example where you decide, well, should a car hit either an older elderly woman or two children, for example. And then that's a dilemma. I would say that we really, really need to talk about what AI is doing now. So not about just what could it potentially do in the future, because that is also kind of taking the tension away from what is happening now. And AI has an impact now. We are all, or most of us anyway, are using AI in some way or another and are impacted in it because it is used by governments, by large corporations in many ways. And I think we will come to the topic of discrimination and bias a bit more. But questioning what AI is doing now and how it's impacting us, how it's impacting subjects, individuals, but also may reinforce structural problems and structural discrimination is important to talk about. When you're talking about how AI is affecting us today, so what would be the most important parts people should know about from your perspective, especially with the, with the focus on ethics of AI? <laughs> Things to talk about... Um so you said, like, what is most important to talk about mm -hmm. right now? I think one thing that is important to know, because that is a common idea, is that these technologies are not neutral. We often have this idea of, okay, it's a computer, it cannot be biased, um, how should it discriminate? Because that's something that only humans do, inherently very human thing to do. But the thing is, because AI, as I just explained, is always dependent on data, and this is human data, it very much mirrors the discrimination patterns and the things that are happening within those data. And therefore, it is not neutral. You, for example, I, I, I think I'll just give an example because that will illustrate it. There was in, I think, 2018, the example of Amazon introducing an algorithm, an AI algorithm, which filtered applications. So they get a lot of applications and they thought, well, you know, we spend a lot of money on people looking through all these applications. Let's have an algorithm which pre-filters this and then gives the recommendations on whom to invite for job interviews. However, after a short while, they took it off again because they found out that the only people that were invited to interviews were men who were white and preferably, I think, called Jason. So, <laughs> as you can see, it, it was mirroring, of course, the structures within Amazon where the people who got the top positions and were promoted very often were majoritively white men. And the algorithm was trained on who is the best performing people 
in those companies. Of course, that is very discriminating and cause kind of an uproar. But there you can see how the algorithm is not neutral. I think that is one thing that I always want to draw attention to. Another thing that is very important to talk about, as was already hinted at, is this problem of AI impacting now and seeing it not as a problem of the future and connected to that also to stay realistic about what AI is doing now. Because what I often see is that there's either this idea of a hype, especially with ChatGPT, you can see that we have AI, which is great and it will do everything in the future and we can solve the climate crisis and we can solve all societal problems with AI, which at this stage is very unrealistic. At the same time, there are the people who are like dooming all technology and saying like, oh, like we will all lose our jobs and society is going to go down. And I mean, I'm exaggerating now, but this kind of doomsday scenarios on the, on the other hand. So I think what we need is more of this middle path of what is happening now. How do we want to, well, create our society? Because in the end, it's human-made technology. We do not need to implement AI in the way we do or in a certain way at all. It's always also a decision to do that. Uh, coming back to the bias first, um, like we've already covered that there definitely is a bias in the data since the data is created by humans, but is there any way we could get the bias out again? So are there approaches right now how we could try to get an unbiased AI? And maybe we should clarify what a bias for a machine system is, if you have a concrete answer to that, or should we maybe <laughs> True. <laughs> make a guess? I don't have like a definite answer to that. I would say a bias means that there are certain... I mean, for me, bias is connected to discrimination as well, so that certain structural societal power structures which are marginalizing certain groups of people are introduced or reinforced through algorithms. That works for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so back to the question. How does how can we treat a bias which is in the data? Are there approaches or ideas on how to handle those things? I mean That's a big question within programming and there's certain like definitely people working on that in several ways. Mm, maybe first a point of problem with that is that algorithms are generally, these ML machine learning algorithms are generally black boxes. So we don't really know what the algorithm does, how certain, it's called weights, are assigned. So these certain probabilities for certain characteristics, for example, how the algorithms learn them through the training data. And there are a lot of people working on that. Um, it's called explainable AI, trying to figure out what is the algorithm actually doing. But doing that is actually really, really difficult from a programming perspective. So... That is one way to address this, to even know, okay, what is the algorithm doing? Then one approach is to just take out certain characteristics of the data. For example, to say we are not um, introducing the variable of gender and sex or the variable of race into the data set because then the algorithm can't discriminate according to these variables. The problem with that, again, is that there's so-called proxy dis discrimination, which means that the algorithm, as it's really good in finding certain patterns, then sometimes takes other variables, which are an indicator for the certain um, protected variable. So, for example, a certain postal code can also be an indicator for a certain racial minority or a certain societal group belonging or certain hobbies are rather connotated with being male 
or female um, in in the in the gender category. So this is a problem that comes up when thinking about data. One thing I mean that is done is like very carefully trying to do data curation. So very consciously choosing only some amount, like some data and making sure that this data isn't having those discriminatory biases. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a, a way to do it. Problem with that, you need a large amount of data and going through all that is very, yeah. It, it just takes a lot of time and a lot of resources to really curate all your data. Um, would you say, because you said that um, postcodes could be used to deduce maybe like a racial minority or something, um, do you say or would you agree that only minorities are currently threatened by artificial intelligence and the emerging biases or are there also um, other people who are, is everyone threatened somehow by uh, biased algorithms and uh, other ethical concerns regarding artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. Good question. I I always take this example of discrimination against majorities because people who are in this position are more likely to experience it earlier and stronger, um, that I would say. Another example maybe is the Schufa algorithm, which um, at least the German people all know, it is very important if you want to, for example, get a loan um, and which uses AI algorithms, which are, which are trained. However, I would say that on a broader level, algorithms, for one, are always predictive. So they project things from the past into the future. And with that, kind of have the risk of projecting historical biases also more into the future. Um, this is again... I guess, more playing into the minority part. But as a whole society, I think we need to question what kind of society do we want? And do we want a society which is discriminatory free? And this then is something that affects everyone. At the same time, for example, like, I mean, the worry about losing jobs, I think is something that is very prominent when we talk about AI system. It came up a lot in the talks about ChatGPT, for example. And with that, I would say the job market, if we continue um, in the AI development we do, will change. Like there will be changes and there will jobs will be different jobs. I don't think that we will all be like jobless and that nobody will have employment anymore. But just having this Yeah, there will be a necessity to change how we interact with that. And also, even like how social media, for example, impacts on how we see and that is more broader, um, impacting people maybe, um, showing certain ideals of how to look like both for men and for like for all people really like beauty ideals which um, are there for men and for women and like how those um, impact on the experiences of the users who see them every day. Yeah, I think especially on Instagram there are some accounts who are just run by AI and create AI pictures of a not really existing person who is perfect in most or in the beauty ideals of a certain country and kind of presenting that in a way that it looks like a normal human being and I think that is getting more and more a trend to have those AI influences which I think is really scary uh, looking at standards um, yeah definitely and also I mean even face filters like um, mm -hmm. or in general beauty filters and how the algorithms work. Like, for example, there's one organization called Algorithm Watch, which is a German NGO um, in Berlin. And they looked at how 
like which kind of pictures by influencers are liked most, um, which are shown most probably on the timelines of most people. For women, those were often pictures which, well, were conventionally beautiful and also which were kind of revealing. So the algorithm also favors certain types of pictures of others, even from humans. So we've talked a bit about that people who are in minorities are most threatened by AI. Um, overall, does AI rather worsen or kind of get better solutions for the whole problem of misinformation online? I would say that through AI, it's easier to spread misinformation. One, because it's easier to create it. Um, then because bots just very easily like can be implemented on a large scale without humans actually being behind there. And because algorithms um, often push certain posts, for example, on social media most, which are interacted with most because, for example, Instagram, um, I mean, the whole business model is built on the idea that people should spend most like a lot of time on there because Instagram or Facebook, Meta, the company behind it, earns money by the amount of advertisement they show to consumers. So consumers should spend most time there so that Meta can display more advertisements so they earn more money. And users tend to interact most with posts which are very like contradictory or which cause a lot of emotional uproar. And those are often posts which may not be formulated in a very nice way and which are prone to spread some type of misinformation or racial discriminationary content. And that is something that has been shown is likely to occur on social media. Also, you may have heard of filter bubbles, which is the idea that the algorithm, for example, on YouTube, like when you look at watch one video which is going into a certain direction, will show you the next video which is also going into a certain direction. So it's very easily to stay in certain bubbles of information instead of automatically reading something else or seeing a different point of view on the same issue. I was just thinking of my or my own Instagram feed and I do see a lot of cats, which I think is fine, but I don't really see a lot of other animal content, just masses of cat content. <laughs> I mean, there were things than that. That's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, and talking of misinformation, um, currently you already um, said or talked about ChatGPT or GPT in general and um, it is also like a very present topic right now because first of all it makes maybe or it increases the accessibility of some information because it's very easy just to to ask a question and formulate it humanly and not maybe um, abstract the question in a way that you would usually do it for a search engine but you can like just ask as you would another person mm -hmm. but on the other hand it has also been shown that it somehow sometimes hallucinates it's called so it just makes up something that sounds very true but isn't. Um, have you thought about misinformation or information in general regarding large language models? Yes, and I think this is a very pressing topic at the moment because ChatGPT is used by many people to actually access information. Um, so Because it's easy, right? Like you just type in a question and then you get a neatly formulated, nice answer to it. Another example is the Bing chat function, which you may have tried out already. I don't know. Um, it's in the Bing search engine. They now have a chat function for with, or in which they have a GPT-4 model. So it's a similar algorithm, algorithm than ChatGPT. It's slightly different, but it's created by the same company. 
um, OpenAI, which is also behind ChatGPT. So it's also a large language model. And this is now directly um, set in the context of a search engine. So there's very much the situation of you can use this as to search, to, to find information. But it works in a similar way as ChatGPT does. You ask a question, you will get an output, then below the output you see the links of where the information stems from, at least some of the information. Mostly you find, for example, Wikipedia, a link to Wikipedia and one or two other links. Then you have the chat um, or the, the input um, window again for the next question. And above that you already find suggestions of what may be interesting to search according to your first search. So again, we have this proneness maybe to only stay within certain frames. And one example that I inputted there was the question of who are 10 famous philosophers. And what came out was all the people who were mentioned, Kant, Aristotle, you name it, um, were all male. They were all dead. And most of them were from Europe, um, with like the exception of Confucius. So what you can see is that there is, is, you know, of course, those are famous philosophers, but it's a very specific idea of what constitutes a famous philosopher. And then the follow-up search ideas which come up were like, would you like to have more information on Kant? Would you like to have more information on Socrates? So you need to have the idea that to even look at people or philosophers who are not from Europe, who are maybe female, who are even still alive. I mean, philosophy is still a field that people work in. Um, so this is one thing where I see that if you have, let's say, a regular web search, which of course is also filtered by algorithms, you may still find certain information by serendipity or you have these different headlines. And even then, like if you input the same search term, like who have 10 famous philosophers into the normal Bing um, search, you will very soon find who are the 10 most famous living philosophers. Stuff like that just comes out when you like browse through it. So that is quite a difference. And maybe to give a more drastic example, and this is a study which just came out a few days ago, um, again by this NGO Algorithm Watch. And they looked at what information comes up in this uh, Bing chat function concerning the elections. Like in Germany, we just had elections in Bavaria and Hesse, I think is the English term, where they ask like even simple questions like who is the leader of the conservative party running for government and the chat function very frequently got those questions wrong or they ask about like what was the scandal with one of the leaders um, in the last two weeks and they display like the algorithm displayed a wrong scandal that wasn't attached to that person at all so in the context of elections this is actually serious misinformation that may have an impact on how people vote so i think that we very much need to have a debate on whether we want to have these language models generate this type of crucial information for us. Are there any approaches right now who try to tackle those issues or is it still an open field to, or no one is really working on right now? How do you mean? Um, like, I mean, are there already aims to kind of avoid misinformation about really specific, especially politics or um, other topics that can really cause harm to societal questions? I mean, the the thing is that these kind of 
while the companies who provide this information are always commercial, like they're non-governmental, and they say that they do try to make sure that only like true information is outputted and that it's not, as you said, hallucinating. However, there are no enforcements of that. So there's no law stating it's not like an algorithm is not allowed to even give an answer to that question. That could also be something you could implement, right? But the problem is that it is actually really difficult also to get the algorithm to output what you want it to output because there's so many different possible inputs and outputs of the algorithm. And and I mean, this is kind of referring back to how the algorithms works, about how what we walked, talked about in the beginning. An algorithm is very good at imitating a certain form of language. And I'm referring here also to a paper by um, Emily Bender, a um, computer linguist from the US who wrote about how we need to distinguish between form and content when talking about AI and especially about large language models where large language models such as ChatGPT are very good at imitating a certain form of language. The output sounds really good and convincing because it's nicely argued, because the sentences sound good. But it's an algorithm and with that a statistical program. There's no reflection on the meaning that it's outputting. So there's no human behind us checking, does this make sense even? And I think that one problem is that many users don't have this basic understanding of what is this algorithm even doing because it does sound so plausible. It's very easy to take it for truth and not fact check what's outputted. And this is not to put the blame on the users, but rather to how also do these corporations um, yeah, seem to push a certain idea of the algorithm being able to give this information, even though it may not be able to do that because as an algorithm, there's no understanding of meaning. Do you think that an approach... Um at like overwriting certain results might be useful. So for example, um, I'm not sure about like Germany, but in the USA there's like this Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe if you in that time frame would like search for philosophers, then like the company could in theory like overwrite um, the results and say like, oh, here are 10 famous black philosophers maybe. Um, do you think that something like this where there is like an oversight by the company would improve anything or um, is that maybe equally dangerous to, to do something like that? I think that it's not enough because that is then still okay. We are still not integrating this idea of what, well, they are famous black philosophers in general, not only for one month um, in, the, in this specific example, maybe. Um, and again, I see the problem that because these algorithms are to a certain degree unsupervised, so they just take all the information um, out of the web and mainly drawn sources like Wikipedia, it's really hard for companies actually to check on those specific searches because there's, as I said, there are so many potential search terms that it's really difficult to filter that out. Um, I mean, certain things are filtered out. For example, like certain terms when it comes to, I don't know, like NS, um, NS stuff, like you probably won't find in there. Like you won't be outputted direct racial slurs because that is filtered out by the companies. Like they do these measures. I would say that it's not enough and that we need, to have more of a dialogue really of who even has the power to structure how information is found and how much power is given to those corporations which filter 
which information is found, which is by now, I mean, crucial part of our infrastructure. Everybody uses Google, right? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Or another search engine, but most people use Google, I guess. We talked about earlier um, that biases usually come from like the human side. Um, but you talked about um, that in context of like recent elections, um, there are also like these misinformation that are provided by these uh, large language models. Um, does that still hold? Like because the information, the, the model never got like biased information. It just got like not the information and then made something up. But mm -hmm. is it still like the bias that comes from a human or is it like the model that or a bias that comes from the model and then is transferred to the human? Is there like also like the reverse happening of what you described earlier? Mm -hmm. Good question. I mean, large language models are still trained on human data and they going back to this like 10 famous philosophers example take those informations also from websites and like if you look at the first few ones you probably also find that information right there on the websites um, so this again is human data scrapped off the net in the case of just having or just having like showing the wrong information about who is the leader of a certain political party. I would say it's still humans who create the code for the algorithm to work in a certain way. So it is still human biases in that. Like, and it's still humans saying it's a good idea to implement this in a certain way and provide this, this code in this way. The algorithm really is statistical code. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's then probably like a different kind of bias because it doesn't reflect anything that is already present in the society, but maybe introduces something else that but still was caused by humans probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, it, it does, AI very much feeds back into society while society also feeds into into the algorithm. So I always kind of see it more as both very much like entangled and you can't really tie um tell them apart so in the AI ethics debate it's often talked about socio-technical systems to make sure to show this entanglement that the social is always also technical at this point and the technical is also social yeah something I was just thinking of for quite some time now is the book quality land it's from a German mm -hmm. author so it's also tackling this issue or we are in a futuristic world in this uh book or in the story where everything is kind of um, shaped in a certain way by AI. So people use AI and AI is therefore telling people what they want to hear, what they want to see, what they want to learn, and thereby creating sub-bubbles of information where people just stay in one information bubble when they have gotten into that. Um, and I think although this book is quite satirical so i can highly recommend it to everyone who hasn't read it i don't know if it's available in english by now i'm not sure we could check that mm -hmm. but um i highly recommend it because it's tackling a lot of topics we've been talking about today in a quite well simple to understand manner because it gives you a story and tackles those issues we've been issues we've been discussing now in this story um And I think it's really fascinating for that. Mm. Well, we've been talking a lot about issues. Large language models have negative issues. So one could get the feeling that using JetGPT or any language learning model is just negative and will just have negative impact on society themselves, their own information. Are there any positive chances we can get out of it? I mean, ChatGPT holds a lot of potential of making life easier in certain ways. Like, I know a lot of people who use it for coding, for example, because it's very good at fixing coding problems um, you may encounter. It 
or something that I see as a potential is also an area of translation. For example, like, you know, making communication easier, um, lowering barriers also for people who may not have a very good English, but having then this potential of even just being like, hey, like, is this grammatically correct? Um, those kind of things, I do see potential in that. Again, like, with a critical reflection of what is this algorithm doing, what can it potentially do? But there's potential definitely in that. I mean, AI in general has some areas where it can be used in a very good way. For example, in medicine, where um, AI is very good, for example, at detecting um, skin cancer. So you can have an AI which scans certain pictures of pe people, um, people's skin and then say whether their skin cancer or not, or how, how high the risk may be. That, for example, is something where I would say this is a very good application of AI, where it can do a lot of good. I think that's a nice positive note to uh, end the content discussion of uh, this interview. Um, but at the end of each episode, we like our guests to put the field that we're talking about into the context of cognitive science and maybe talk about which um, subfields are usually the most relevant for that topic and maybe um, what their background is they brought with it. Maybe if you say you didn't uh, do your bachelor's in, uh, in cognitive science, can you draw off uh, methodologies or information you learned from your bachelor's that still are relevant for you today and the topics you, you think about now? Yeah. I mean, within, within cognitive science, I would say that for me, what I took, especially from my master's, which I did in cognitive science for this whole debate, was the general idea of artificial intelligence, which I did not encounter before. Of course, I heard the term, but it was very much something that from what is it actually about, how do I actually program an AI algorithm, was something that I only encountered in my master's degree in cognitive science. So obviously there's a strong connection to that. Also, within the field of cognitive science, there's um, the connection to philosophy, because after all, ethics is a field within philosophy where we talk about these kind of things and where we encounter certain concepts that we'd also talk about in the context of the ethics of AI. From my bachelor, I would say I take definitely the background in philosophy, which I'm now using of critical theory and gender studies, actually. Like, how do we even understand something like discrimination on a more on a deeper level than just saying this term, which is often used, but not ever very often reflected upon, um, having the theoretical background in questioning how societal power structures are working and how they may be enforced through certain algorithms. So those are things that I probably take also a lot from my bachelor. And in a way, I think that combines very nicely within the field of the ethics of AI, which has this rooting in the theoretical field of philosophy, gender studies, media studies as well, right? Like where different subfields come together. And then at the same point, this very technological biased understanding of AI systems. So this is what is... I think great about the field and very interesting is to bring these two together. And the importance of this, I think we kind of talked about through the whole episode, but showing a nuanced picture of how AI works and the impact this has, especially in the current situation where AI is talked a lot about, where there's a lot of hype happening and also within Cognitive science, AI, is a very dominant field at the moment. To have a critical and reflected understanding of what does it do, how does it impact 
us, society, how do we want to deal with it as a society? And to think about, yeah, how to create a future with AI. I feel like your last part already was a quite neat summary of today's interview. So is there anything you would like to add what people should definitely remember or are you, well, would you stay to that summary? I think the summary is good. Um, I think for me, yeah, but we talked about that before, is really like staying realistic about what is happening now, questioning how is AI impacting society now and very much just spreading the world not not the world, spreading the word of what is AI and with that demystify it, like talk with people about that, like what is AI read articles which show nuanced pictures of them, which go beyond this doom and hype but really question what what do they do now how they do they enforce certain power structures and Question yourself how you interact with those systems. So with that being said, thank you very much for this super rich, interesting and yeah, I just can't just say interesting mm -hmm. interview. <laughs> and thank you so much for finding the time today. And well, something you won't notice as a listener, but Today's episode has been quite chaotic in the beginning because we've been moved to different recording rooms. So it was a really new situation for also us and we couldn't keep it to our normal routine. So also thank you very much for your patience with us in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And as I said, thank you for inviting me. And yeah, best of luck with your podcast. I think it's a really cool project that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. Produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palmer, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne. Produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.